Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school. Rock school with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Where was where was the audio board? Were you out front of house or were you off to the side of the stage? Always, always out, out front. We were about uh, you know, seventy-five feet from the stage left. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. Once again, Tammy isn't with us because it's June. We're in the midst of our summer interview run. Still talking Woodstock today, and I have such a special guest today. I cannot believe this person even wanted to speak to me. He's often known as the father of festival sound. His name is Bill Hanley. Bill Handley is responsible for the sound at Woodstock, but not only the sound at Woodstock, he is the person who has engineered how festivals are done. Everything about Woodstock's sound was new. It was well put together. It was built for 100,000 people, but it shot out to half a million. Those who know audio see Bill Handley as one of the major pioneers of the business, specifically this idea of festival sound. He's really entertaining and I'm happy to have him. So for an hour today, the father of festival sound, the man who made sure people could hear it all at Woodstock, Bill Hanley on Rock School. On the phone with me is Bill Hanley, the person in charge of the sound at Woodstock. Bill, I'm, 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 I can't tell you how happy I am that you decided to take an hour of your life and talk to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Sure. It says here, and I've, I've read a lot of articles about you and with you, so I want to do just a little bit of a background here before we get into Woodstock. It says here you're referred to as the father of festival sound. Uh, you believe that? You, you, you think that's deserved? Absolutely. Why do you think that I is? Was the first, I was the first guy to provide a service nationally from running large events audio wise that you could hire reason reasonably mm-hmm. to do your job to do a job for you or as a promoter or a special event or whatever now you did the boston arts festival was that the first one out of the gate well i i didn't do the sound for the boston arts festival it was where i saw some bigger high quality gear was used mm-hmm. by david klepper of both Brannick and Newman fame. How can I put it? Uh, how would you cl- how would you plan it? That's what I studied. I <clears throat> how I get interested in it in, in the problems that are involved in doing a big mm-hmm. event like that. You did uh, the Newport Jazz Festival, correct? That was a that was correct. a tremendous I started number of people. mixing in 1957. Right. So you had this problem. You're not in a concert hall. 
you're outside, you have to throw to a bunch of people. What, what were your thought processes? I mean, where did you take it from there? How did you set it up? Well, those are a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, <laughs> let's go down the roads. One question at a time. Okay. When you were doing the Newport Jazz Festival, which correct, you, I was. I yeah. did, I went down there because they had a lot of problems because they had changed the stage location and were facing this giant concrete stand and everything was bouncing back at the stage and driving the performers crazy. And I had heard about their problems and I called to get the job and found out that the guy from New York was going to do it. And then they. Uh, changed it and I showed up down there and then the next thing you know I was running the sound system. What's the difference between a festival and a, a concert hall? What different things do you multiple, have to deal with? Multiple multiple acts and stuff mm-hmm. you know I, that are coming one after the other whereas a concert is one act and usually one act or maybe two when you're doing out, when you're outside, you have to have multiple. Uh, you have to have, figure out the speaker system and however how the audience is positioned, stuff like that. Is loudness your main concern? Is it throw? What's what's the main concern? People here and can get emotionally involved in what's going on on the stage mm-hmm. with the performer, and you have to have reasonable level and no distortion as possibly can. Lowest, lowest amount of distortion as, as you can possibly have. You are throwing a right. lot of watts. Well, later on, a lot of watts. At that time, you know, 200, 200 watt amplifier was the biggest around at the time on a, a non-commercial basis. I read in an article that you considered a concert with the Beatles that changed your thought process on festival sound can you tell me about that the beatles were a very uh difficult situation because i never anticipated the audience being as loud as they were you know you couldn't hear yourself think it was all focused at second base i didn't do the first concert there i did the second one there and it was the first one was a disaster (laughs) sid bernstein brought me into try to help with that because I was chasing around the country looking at larger gigs and trying to get into Roseland and wherever, wherever I heard whenever I heard about a big event I would chase after the audio for it what was the difference and, between the first Beatles concert there I think you're talking Shea Stadium yes that's correct yeah no, the first major concert was there yes mm-hmm what you said you uh, you said the first one was a disaster and the one you did was was much better. What differences did you make from the first to the second? Well, I didn't do the first one. It was we can't find out who did the first one. Mm-hmm. They just changes. They have a distributed column speaker system around the uh, around the uh, diamond, and I I put the cluster when I realized what was going to happen to some degree. I put everything on either side, stage left and stage right and face them down and put two-way uh, loudspeaker system in. you got to remember that I'm one of these scientific-type people. <laughs> <laughs> and these questions you ask are not uh, easily answered simply. So that that's 
you know, what happened, they just generated so much noise. In fact, we I found some guys in Florida that said they were they heard good. And I said, well, where were you? And they said, well, they were up in the, the, t- the top tier <laughs> where they were out of the, the focal range of all the audience screaming at the stage. Yeah, the audience overtook the band on the first ones. That's correct, but you could you could hear the band, some of the band, and some of the music up on the balcony, but you couldn't hear it down in, in the lower sections where the audience were mm-hmm. because they were making so much noise. a dream last night What a lovely dream it was I dreamed we all were alright Happy in a is a feeling tomorrow But as I recall the rest will just follow I had a dream last night What a lovely dream it was I dreamed we all were all right Happy in a land of ours What a lovely dream it was What, what did you take from that to put together the Woodstock system? Well, I didn't, they, they, they didn't relate because it was a whole different layout of audience where you'd put the speakers and stuff. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a big budget to do Woodstock, and Woodstock was, was done with a two-tiered system, one way up in the air with narrow dispersion loudspeaker system. And then the uh, the lower thing was wide dispersion sound system. There was no room or position to do anything at the Beatles uh, concert at the Shea Stadium. So it's all, you know you design it around the the audience position and then the stage position relative to the audience. When people read about you and Woodstock the one element that keeps coming up is that you invented and built special amplifiers for the project. Can you tell us about those? I built amplifiers and built mixes and did that stuff, but by that time we had found Macintosh. It's a very good amplifier, and uh, we went with that as a as a basic power amplifier that we would yeah, that we would use. And they were set up at uh, dual 75-watt amplifiers, set up to be 150-watt amplifiers. And how many of those did you run? At Woodstock? Yes. Oh, t- 20-something of them. There was also the towers at Woodstock. That's where the speakers ended up being located, yes. Right. So the idea was to throw over the heads of the audience rather than point it right at them? Right. There were two, two systems... There was a unique problem at the uh, Yasgur farm, and there were pockets up on the top of the hill, and I had to get inside those so that the people who were 
that was sitting up the hill didn't block out the sound for the people in the pockets. Mm-hmm. So I went way up in the air. I wanted to, uh, and that's how I, that's what the top speakers were, were set up to do. And then the wide dis- dispersion, I designed a security wall system too, and recording system. So all this stuff is, you know, tied together, depending on each other, dependent on each other. So that's, that's basically what transpired. And then I uh, suppressed, uh, comp- compressed the uh, signal for the top level speakers and left the bottom much wide, wider dynamic range. If that makes sense. Sure. Why would you compress? Why would you put compression on the hires and, and leave the lower ones uh, not as compressed? What was the point? What did you want to do with that? The point is so everybody can try to hear as far back as I can get because he, I was only told to set up for 100,000 people. 500,000 or so showed up. I needed to get as much level up at the back as possible. And that you do that similar to how you operate a radio transmitter mm-hmm. where you bring the low-level signal up and when the signal gets loud, you turn it down a little bit, and then you bring the whole thing up next to the distortion point. And that is how I operated and set it up. I wanted to use multiple tiers, but he didn't have the budget for it. They were $8,000 a piece. Wow. Each tape delay. Right. You know, no digital stuff then. That's one of the rationales of how to deal with the problem. And then I, I designed those walls in a, a basic V-type situation so that the people <clears throat> would have to sit in a funnel-type setup so I could get sound to them. And not that it, but the, the crowd just overwhelmed the whole thing, as you know. Just for the sake of argument, you mentioned 8000 Do you Do you remember what your budget was for Woodstock? Uh the budget for the sound reinforcement was, I think, 16000 or something like that. That whole thing that I saw was put together for 16000 back in 1969. Yep. Wow. Did you run all of this through a single board? Correct. Who was that? Did you write it? I wrote it for a while. A bunch of my people wrote it. We were doing that. We were doing that stuff all over the place uh, from, uh, I guess, Cafe, uh, let's see, uh, a show at Yankee Stadium uh, and on. And I'm trying to think of the date of it, but at the moment I can't. The Beach Boys and Little Stevie Wonder. But that was all done from one point, yes, by multiple mixes because another mix, I took the good mixer and put it in the recording setup and then pieced together uh, smaller mixes for the rest of the show, sitting on a platform with a piece of polyethylene over it and a scaffolding uh, table. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me I never die, 
for 400,000. Now, it's going to be good food and we're going to get it to you. It's not just the hog farm either. It's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. Now, there's a guy up there, some hamburger guy, that had his stand burned down last night. But he's still got a little stuff left. And for you people that still believe that, you know, capitalism isn't that weird, you might help him out and buy a couple of hamburgers. Okay. Okay, here it comes, mess call. Okay, time for our first break. We need to take a minute and give our affiliates the ability to run their commercials, but we'll be back to talk more with Bill Hanley on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, if you're listening to this on podcast and thinking to yourself, gosh, this would sound so much better on the radio, well, it can be. The Rock School Radio Show is available to any radio station here in the United States or abroad. We already have one in Spain. What you need to do if you'd like to help us out is contact your local radio station and say, hey, why don't you run the Rock School Radio Show? It's free. Yeah, free. Doesn't cost them anything. We will take as many affiliates as we can and we're giving it away. Have them get in touch with me or Todd. Todd will talk to them. Go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool, southeastern.edu slash rockschool, and there's a little button on there that says contact us, and that's where they contact us. Thanks a lot right there in advance. Hopefully we can get on another radio station thanks to you. Where was... Where was the audio board? Were you out front of house, or were you off to the side of the stage? Always, always out, out front. We were about uh, you know, 75 feet from the stage left corner. About 20, split in the middle. You split it at 90 degrees from the center. It was probably you know, 65 degrees or so. Speaking of riding the board, I mean... There were band after band after band. Did you get to run any sound checks, or was the first song that nope. the band played? First song, yeah. first song was Bang. How did you handle the idea of, I mean, I'm just going to name some bands. You've got Richie Havens, which is just a guitar and a voice. You've got Sha Na Na, which is a chorus. Yeah. You've got The Who. How did you handle, or did you know you were going to have these multiple different genres in one shot? 
Well, you got to remember that we were doing these acts, you know, right along. It wasn't a new thing. I had been doing Newport from 57, mixing down there, and then going into the, knew a lot of the acts from being down in the village at the Cafe Gogo, Howard Solomon's place, mm-hmm. and the scene, and this place and that place. We were trying to get acts and, and provide good sound for their concerts. Did you know going in uh, what each whack, each act was coming up? How many Pretty instruments much so. and such? Yeah. We were doing it the Three Dog Night, and this one, the Beach Boys. The... How did you get from band to band? Was there a dead space? Was I mean, how did you how did you change from band to band? Well, they set the equipment up in lines behind it because the turntable system didn't work. It broke down. They forgot to put uh, washers and stuff on top of the uh, screw heads that were on the casters underneath the uh, half-moon rotating table that they designed. So the stage was supposed to be a lazy Susan? In effect, yes. Yeah. Good good, 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 uh, identification for it, yeah. So it didn't work? No, it fell apart. As soon as it loaded up, they had designed it to be a low profile and then secured the wheels to a piece of three quarter inch plywood. And they were tall wheels, like a six or eight, about eight inch in diameter. And they bolted it up and they were very close to the center of gravity of the, uh, the center of rotation, I should say. And then when they went to move them, it put an unusual load on it and just screw heads pulled right through plywood and the, mm. The stage frame set the rotate, the turntable frame set down on the stage, and that was the end of the the <laughs> setup for the groups. That's why it took so long between the setups. You know, there's a new set of recordings out. Did you know that now? No, I didn't. <clears throat> there's a set of recordings of audience and music and everything all put together in many hours, and you can hear that stuff go on. I have. I have some questions. I put this up on the internet, told people I was going to be speaking to you, and I have some questions from uh, a bunch of my listeners. Let me throw a few of these at you, okay? Okay. Guy named Dan, who's a listener, he says, Jimi Hendrix was a master of feedback and was sort of different than anybody there. I mean, did you fear for your equipment? How did you handle him against the other the other bands. Well, I, I knew Jimmy and had done him before. It wasn't a new thing in his work. Uh, I was careful. <laughs> <laughs> and I had limiting compression and limiting and everything to, to watch what I needed to do to make sure that I didn't overdrove equipment and blowing it out. I was very careful of it because I had experienced it at Newport for years. Mm-hmm. That was my uh, expertise, making it happen well. Was there, I mean, was there any reason that he went last? Was it because of the equipment, or is that just the way it came out? Just the way it came out. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with that.
guy named Gary said, "Hi, on, Gary. Hey, Gary. <laughs> on the uh, on the recording, there's a couple of the, the the Woodstock album that he has. There's a couple points, and the one he points out is Crosby, Stills, and Nash during Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, where yep. they yell at you from the stage. You know, drop the bottom and stuff. Is that you they're yelling at?" I don't think I mixed them. I forget who would, who was mixing for them. So you that wasn't. But I had I had, been, I had been doing some of them from the Buffalo Springfield mm-hmm. days. In fact, that's where the we developed the footlight monitor speaker, which wasn't done before at all. Tell us we what that was, Neil Young. That was giving the the loudspeaker was on the floor in front of the performer, facing up at the back of the microphone in the performer's ears. So we could hear the themselves. Tell me about this guy named Mark wants to know who was your problem band, which was the one that the, was the most difficult to produce. Well, I I don't have any idea who that would be. <laughs> they were all easy. Come on, one of them had to be tough. Not that I can remember at the moment. I you you know you you hit one, two, three, four, go. Yeah. <laughs> And then and, you piece it together. If you're familiar it. with the music, then you can do it. And it, we were familiar with it all. We weren't green at all. We were, you know, in the mix, put it simply. That was my express work at Newport with all the different acts that go there. And earlier stuff, we were blowing speakers, and then uh, we learned how not to do that. And uh, But that was our express job, to make it happen well. And we just designed around that from an engineering point of view, not from a musical point of view. Craig wants to know, was, fine, Craig. was this just a job for you or were you taken aback and could see that this was history in the making? Well, I saw that when the crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, we knew it was going to be big. We didn't know it was going to be that big by any stretch of the imagination. So you, you handle it best you can. You compress it more and deal with the best way you can with what you got. I mean, we couldn't get in and out of there with more gear. We couldn't do anything much else other than, you know, two or three days, <laughs> two or three days beforehand. And I had spent a month building special speakers for the top level so I could concentrate the audio energy to the back of the house, which was moved further back. <laughs> And we expected by any stretch of the imagination. With a half a million people, you bet. Right. Sure. How about this one? Here's a basic one. What was the sleep? This is from Larry. What was the sleeping arrangement? You didn't stay up 72 hours straight. What What was the, what was no. the rotation? We, we, we moved the mobile home up there. Oh, did you? Yep. <laughs> so how long did you ride the board? How long were you off? Oh, I was working in another console that wasn't working right that I had built for the job. Mm-hmm. We were having parasitic oscillation problems with an API console elements inside it. And we were trying to get that straightened out. So I was in and out. You know, well, how so about this? Was- my uh, my buddy Greg, who is an ex-roadie, he, uh, he has this question for you. I know these folks were working. As someone who has worked at a whole lot of concerts, uh, he finds that after a while, you, you kind of lose the enjoyment. It becomes a job. But he says, but was there a moment in the music you can really recall enjoying? I didn't have any time to do that. <laughs> no? 
<clears throat> my job is not to listen to the music per se or make an observation of it, just to try to make it sound like the recording and the, the music that we were familiar with and try to get that to the back of the house. That's the that's the name of the book that's being written, The Last Seat in the House, and to try to let everybody participate in what was happening on the stage as best we could. Ladies and gentlemen, to continue, please greet very warmly with us, Mountain. <laughs> Tell me about the in book. The Tell me about the book, you say. I, this is the first I've heard of it. Oh, uh, John Kane wrote this book, and it's all about the history of sound reinforcement and how I started out with it and other sound companies that had done stuff from the 30s. See, nobody had done anything like I did going all over the country just doing events and trying to do a high-quality job for the lowest possible amount of money. Otherwise, it was a the local sound company built, put sound systems in the churches, in the schools, and in the factories, and in the nightclubs, but they're all small. The big bands at Roseland and places like that had two A7s or four A7s and a you know, 50-watt amplifier, a couple of 50-watt amplifiers, and a couple of thousand people on a dance floor that was an old roller skating rink. But nobody expressly set out to make this happen well audio wise that's uh i was a pioneer in making that happen to try to get quality out there and get music out there nobody was expressly doing that other than a few fairs and they would operate a couple of times a year practically right or a few fairs and that was the end of it but i would anytime i heard about an event such as the anti-war movement thing and then Pidiaro brought me in there to do <coughs> the uh, couple of marches in Washington and New York and Central Park and George with Newport and the, fest the whole festival scene because I had enough equipment to do it and was collecting it to do those kinds of things. Whereas all these other people were doing factories and small places and didn't have large, large inventories of equipment to do a big audience and the expertise to do it because their workers were <clears throat> there to make sound systems hello test once it, yeah it's okay see you later <laughs> <laughs> well you had to I, be in, you had to be in demand 
No, it wasn't a demand. I had to make the demand because once people started hearing about it, then demand came up. <clears throat> there wasn't any demand back there. There was a fight to get people to, to uh, use us. It's just that they didn't know, or you had to school them to, that this was a I different had a school, animal? I had, a, I had to school them, show them, and try to sell it and get the price very low to try to do it. Because otherwise, why should I hire you to, when this guy can do it for this? Right. Except the, the guy wasn't really in the, in the business of making events happen well audio-wise. He was in the business of selling gear. And maybe doing a rental, a few rental shows or a special event where it's just a political hacking type thing. No one was in there to do musical stuff. You've mentioned twice about getting the price as low as possible. Did you make but a... You had to, you had to compete with the local guys. If Could... I have to go to Chicago to do a show in Detroit, I barely got, made any profit at all practically. I was going to ask, it. did you make a living at this? Not really. I spent all my money. <laughs> the audio files thing is a great source of using up money. Yeah, <laughs> that it is. That it is. Well, you get radio stations. They buy gear to, uh, you know, to make money with advertising. I bought gear to try to to change the world and make it a better place to live in by having good, having good, intelligible, high quality audio for the audience, musically and politically, whatever uh -huh. whatever came up, or what the customer wanted when I tried to sell him what I thought he was interested in, to try to get him to say yes and give me some money to deal with it, because I, I went to, <clears throat> when I first started going down to New York and realizing that a lot of sound was being controlled down there, it was being controlled by a few couple of companies Mask Sounds were doing Broadway Theater and Fitzpatrick, Fitzy Sounds Associates was doing some Broadway Theater and one or two stagehands had a small system. And that was pretty much it. And then the other companies just called a local sound company to come in and do audio. And they sold a speaker or a nightclub, to, you know, and that was what they had. But no one was geared up to, to make take the best high quality gear and put it out there on the on the larger shows time for our second break we're speaking with bill hanley the father of festival sound the man who designed and ran woodstock's sound it is the 50th anniversary after all back in a minute here on rock school did you do this after Woodstock or are you still doing it? 
I'm still just doing a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. We do MIT's commencement with my brother, and my kid goes over there. And I'll go over there the day of the show and make sure that the level's lot, <clears throat> the level is high enough. I started in, uh, I guess, in high school, in effect. MIT should have you into lecture. Well, they're not into that angle of it. They're into, you know, numbers and that kind of thing. Yeah. Were you... See, the... nobody, was in, nobody was into it as a whole service, other than the fair people who ran around the country doing fairs in their local areas. Chicago and uh, Milwaukee and Detroit and uh, Atlanta and Miami, little places. Yeah. And nobody was doing major events and so michael pulled off the one at uh, the gulf stream racetrack i believe that's where it was i was uh, chased by uh, stan goldstein to get the help of that and then he called me when he got when did michael doing a woodstock celebration did you have anything to do with woodstock 94 and 99 yeah i didn't do the audio in any, any of them i showed up at uh what was it 99 mm-hmm. one of them i forget I helped in the, the riots and stuff up there. Yeah, that's I, right. That's right. That was in uh, really wasn't Utica. riots. It was poorly handled by what happened. The major thing that happened that never should have happened was that the Claire and group left the site. They shut down, I guess, I don't know if hit the last act or not, but then there was a small group of people that now could talk and... Uh, decided they were going to be being taken and they were going to set fires uh, to the, one of the speaker towers. And instead of turning the sound system up, they left. Hmm. And so that people couldn't uh, hear themselves think, which is what should have happened. And then they couldn't have got a big, <clears throat> gotten a big crowd together to cause damage. I mean, I caught a girl stuffing straw underneath the tractor trailer wheels and threw her out of there. And I didn't realize that they were, trying to steal a, a cause commotion and steal a, a money make, money machine and that kind of thing. Because wow. I was trying to see that, that the events went on and to try to make them go trouble-free. Are you doing anything for the 50th anniversary of Woodstock? Well, I'm on several shows, and I'm supposed to talk to Michael, but he's been busy raising money, so i got to try to get a hold of him this week. Let me jump back to the, to the, uh, to the concert. Uh, I have sure. the DVD. I have the uh, the Woodstock and Woodstock Two. Now it's a four DVD, a four CD set. Were you the crew that also recorded the Woodstock albums that I'm listening to? Yeah, Lee Osborne was working for me. How'd you do and it? And all my equipment and my eight, those done on eight track scullies. Straight off the main <laughs> board into the a couple of eight tracks. No, we had our own board set up. A good, my good console that I just built. We were building a 50 microphone input console at the time, and we we delegated that for the recording. And then we roughed it with Alltech and Shure and some other submixes with LA2As and stuff like that. I'll give you one more question from a listener here. Uh, sure. Monique wants to know, okay, it's over. Jimmy has played. How long did it take you to tear this whole thing down and get lost? Well, it didn't take us long. We had a tractor trailer. We were out at the same time with that big guitar group out in California. I'm trying to think my brother went out there. Mm-hmm. 
who was it? The uh, bunch of famous guitar players. It took us probably, uh, you know, we were out of there in a day or two. I was concentrated on those towers, so the cranes were still there. So we just uh, grabbed onto stuff and took the stuff all out. And the people were gone enough that you could drive away in a day and a half? Yeah. After the crowd, had, they were all walking around looking for stuff on the ground and lost stuff. We had, uh, you know, rolled up our cables and got it ready to go in the truck. And then the crew come over and loaded us in the truck. And cranes brought the speakers down to the truck level. And yeah. And that just, was it. Just put you know, it away. We, you got to remember that we that's what we did. That Where did, was our work. Where did you go after it was over? Didn't you just suggest you had another gig to get to? We had to get a, did a gig at the same time. <laughs> the, Terry done, had done the guitar group. I can't remember some famous guitar players. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Atlanta, and not Atlanta. I guess D- Dallas came. I, Dallas came next. I'm, or no, I, you know, I guess it was Atlanta for Alex Cooley, and then off to Dallas and we brought the stage and everything to those two gigs mm-hmm. and we did Festival Express across Canada and you know, that was our work yeah Woodstock we was just dead. on the on the calendar and then something else was next that's right went to Puerto Rico Puerto Rico where else did we go we went to uh, oh I can't think of it. another island down there how'd you get everything to the island you go on a boat or you fly it down yeah we went on a ship or track the trailers. Oh, you could just drive the trailers onto the ship. Right. Yeah? You know, we were tuned to do this kind of thing. You know, people started copying me, Claire, and Shoko went into business from uh, my stuff with a show in Dallas. Claire had seen me at one of the schools with one of the, I'm trying to think of who it was, but the Four Seasons, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. So what we were doing, and then they went back and they made that system so it could stuff in a truck better, and then they just put the stuff on the sides of the stage. I was always trying to get more even coverage by putting the speakers way up in the air, and we were the first company to put the rigging up there. With the, it's what people to, do. Oh. It's what people do today. Every time I go to a concert, the stuff's up in the air. That's right. Yeah, your idea is how it's done. I come up with all. Come up with most of those ideas. Even distortion came from me. It, it didn't come did? from me. It, no, it didn't come from me. Yeah. But it came from a com- competition between, uh, what the hell's the name? The Grand Funk Railroad. And being an effective tool to the audience, distortion was a, an effective tool. We put two systems up side by side. And they square, square waved it. And uh, I had to admit it was valid uh, feeling that it generated in the audience. And I had been a come from the school of fidelity, faithfulness to reproduce music as it was originally created as best you could on the run on the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> well, wonderful. Bill, you're Bill Hanley, the, the sound at Woodstock. Uh, it sounds like it was just part of your world at the time, but uh, 50 years later, people just people were just knocked out with what? you did and I, I can I can hear that to you it's well it's what we do but it, it was a knockout to a lot of people and it's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you thank you so much for thank taking you. Oh, listen, day. you know we also also did Johnson's inauguration did you 
That's that's correct. <laughs> You've had a heck of a life. I did all of the anti-war movement stuff. Yep. Yeah, you had a heck of a I life. Was hectic life. Maybe didn't make any money, but we. <laughs> they come on. Nobody. We changed, goes... we, we changed the world. Nobody goes into music to make money. You go into music to spend money. That's right. Then that's Good. what you did. Well. Well put. (laughs) Bill, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, thank you so much. You bet. You're welcome. Bye. We forsake you, gonna rape you, let's forget you better.